So few things are more difficult for families to discuss than money. Did you know that? And I think this is especially true in the American culture, which is kind of surprising to me because in a world where there are very few secrets and in a world where there is very little modesty, it seems that money is one of the things that families struggle to discuss openly more commonly than anything else. In fact, I often think that it's probably just handed down in a family's DNA. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. As a child, I don't recall ever hearing my family talk about money. That was just something that we didn't talk about. It was a private thing. We never discussed financial matters. And I can see that character still at work in me today. It's just something that's private to me. It's something that I don't care to discuss with people very often. And I think even more taboo than the discussion of day-to-day finance is the discussion of inheritance, don't you think? I mean, sometimes it seems a little bit rude or maybe a little bit discourteous to speak to a parent about what, if any, inheritance you may expect when the parent is gone. I mean, isn't that kind of an awkward discussion for you to have? Isn't that kind of a clumsy thing to talk about? I mean, how does that even go? By the way, Dad, the brothers and sisters and I, we were just kind of wondering, I mean, when you finally die, how much money are you going to leave us? Right? I mean, how do you have that discussion? It seems kind of clumsy. It seems kind of rude. Seems a little discourteous. But according to a 2017 story by Esther Bloom, who is a senior editor at CNBC, the wealthier a family is, the more difficult that conversation becomes. So the more money they have, the more difficult it is to have the discussion regarding inheritance with their child. The Washington Post reported that only 10%, get this, only 10% of wealthy parents will ever have the conversation with their children in which they give them the full picture of what the children stand to inherit. Only 10%. And because the conversation is so difficult, people are often just left to guess what inheritance, if any, they may expect. In fact, it was interesting to me to note that because of this lack of communication, 68% 68% of millennials expect to receive an inheritance, but only about 40% of them are actually going to get anything. So 68% of millennials believe they're going to get an inheritance because they've never had the conversation with their parents, but 60% of them are going to be very disappointed when they find out they get absolutely nothing. And I think there are several reasons for that. I think there are several reasons that families tend to keep their silence when it comes to inheritance. And I I think some of those are very obvious. I think sometimes those families are waiting for the children to become a little bit more mature before they discuss it. And unfortunately, a lot of times children never really do seem to mature. And we don't want to have those conversations with them. And sometimes people don't want their children to hope for something that they may not actually realize. I mean, we don't know what the stock market is going to do. We don't know what's going to happen to my 401k. We don't know what's going to happen with all of the things that I've saved. And how do I know, after I've communicated it to them, that all of a sudden the stock market takes a crash and I don't have anything left. And so now here my child is hoping for all of these great things, but they never get anything. And finally, another reason that people don't share is because, quite frankly, the parents feel like it's really none of their business. It really isn't any of my child's business how much I have. If they get something, they get something. If they don't, good for them, right? But for whatever reason, parents don't communicate the details of the inheritance to their children oftentimes. But one thing that we do know for sure is that when children get their inheritance, they rarely last very long. Did you know that? Children, listen closely to this. You ready for this? Jay Gold was born in New York in 1836 to a family without much resource. His family were farmers. They worked hard. They had very little. 
But Jay had decided at a very early age that he was not going to be a farmer. He decided he wasn't going to be that guy. And so one day, his father, very disappointed that he had decided not to take the same vocational route that he had taken, loaded Jay up, gave him 50 cents and a bag of clothes, took him to school and dropped him off and left. And said, that's it, Jay. The school can raise you. You're on your own. And so Jay did. He left at a very early age and he grew up in a school. And he was taught by the principal. And at a very early age, Jay began working as a bookkeeper for a local blacksmith. But soon he discovered that he had this natural ability to invest in the right things at exactly the right time. So during the Civil War, Jay began investing in the railroad industry. And he did very, very well. And by 1873, he had taken majority control of the Union Pacific Railroad. And his wealth began to just explode. He became very, very wealthy. By the time Jay died, in 1892, he owned nearly 10% of all railroad tracks in the United States. And he also had an inflation-adjusted net worth of over $71 billion. He was very, very wealthy. He was one of the richest Americans of all times. Jay's children were going to inherit an absolute fortune. They were going to inherit a fortune. But as the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 31, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. You see, Jay's oldest son, George, received the entire family fortune. But quickly and hastily, George gained his wealth. And so what happened was very bad. You see, George had a total of ten children, all of whom he recognized in his own will. But more of George's money went to creditors than to his own children. So this man who had inherited so much money had very little left by the time his inheritance was passed on to his children. George, in fact, had $30 million left when he died. Thirty million. And after all of the creditors were paid off, George's children were said to collectively have inherited $5 million. $5 million was all that was left, and that's in 1933 currency. And you know what? This is pretty typical of inheritance in America. American families have a habit of burning through massive amounts of cash. According to Time Magazine, 70%, listen to this, 70% of all inherited wealth is gone by the second generation. 70%. And by the third generation, 90% or virtually every penny of it has already been squandered. By the third generation, 90% of a family's fortune has already been squandered. And in America, it seems like no inheritance is safe, doesn't it? I mean, what the stock market and the probate courts don't take, attorney fees and the next spoiled generation will, and soon it's all gone. Jay Gold had worked his entire life to amass this huge fortune. And then on December 2nd of 1892, at the age of 56, Jay died. I wonder how much his millions mattered to Jay on December 3rd. He died a billionaire on December 2nd, but on December 3rd, his money didn't matter anymore, did it? His money didn't matter to him anymore on December 3rd. Now, for those of you who have 
not been with us for the last month or so as we've begun our journey through the book of Ephesians, we've begun to understand what it means for us to be in Christ, haven't we? We begin to understand what it means for us to be in Christ. So today, as we come to verse 11 of chapter 1 for our study, we're going to find that one of the great benefits of being in Christ is that we receive an inheritance. You and I will receive an inheritance. But the inheritance that we receive in Christ is different than the inheritance received by George Gold and his family. I want to make sure that you understand that as a co-heir of Jesus Christ, as one who receives an inheritance, I want you to understand what you receive as that co-heir. So let's take a look at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1. And it starts out like this. It says, In him we have obtained, past tense, we have obtained an inheritance. So as we studied the book of John for the last couple of years, we learned that if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then we have life in his name, didn't we? That's what we learned from the book of John. The moment that you first believe, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you and you become one in spirit with Jesus Christ. You become one in spirit with Jesus Christ and you are now in Christ. You have been joined together with him by the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of you. And at that point, God then adopts you into his family and he gives to you all of the rights. He gives to you all of the privileges of his own son. So as family members, at that point, you now have an inheritance. So what is an inheritance? Kids, do you know what an inheritance is? An inheritance is simply a portion. It is simply a part of or it is a share, any one of those three, a portion, a part, or a share of something. That's what an inheritance is. So we have a portion, we have a part, we have a share in all that the Father has. Do you see that? As part of his family, you have an inheritance. You have a portion, you have a share in the kingdom of God. And I think that it's at this point that we begin to become a little bit confused. And I think when people think about the kingdom of God or all that the Father has, they tend to think of heaven, don't they? Isn't that what you think of when people talk about the kingdom of God or all the things that the Father has? And it is true, it does include those things. But I think, unfortunately, heaven is another one of those eternal things that we try to comprehend. It's another one of those things that we try to understand with our temporary minds, and it's very difficult for us to understand heaven in those terms. In Revelation chapter 21, John attempts to communicate to us the content of his vision when he saw heaven. So he tells us what he saw when he had a vision of heaven. And in doing that, he uses some descriptive language, I think, which shapes our understanding of what heaven is. So when we think of heaven, what do we think of? We think of streets paved with gold, right? How many of you think of streets paved with gold when you think of heaven? Most of us, don't we? When we think of heaven, kids, we think of 12 gates that are made of pearls. We think of 12 gates that are made of pearls. We think of all the precious stones that decorate the walls, like the jasper, like sapphire, amethyst, diamonds, all of these things we think of when we think of heaven. One thing that I think of when I think of heaven is found in verse 4 of Revelation 21, and it says this, He will wipe away every tear from the eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. How many of you look forward to having no sorrow and no illness and no death when you get to heaven? Isn't that something that you think of? I think when we think about heaven, that's one of the things that we think of. All of us are looking forward to a time when there's no sorrow. We all look forward to a time when there's no illness and when there's no death. 
And those people with physical ailments are looking forward to a time when they are made well. And these certainly are aspects of the kingdom of God which we will inherit. But I want you to understand there's much more to it than that. There's much more to heaven. There's much more to the kingdom of God than that. You see, what happens is when we allow our earthly minds to shape our understanding of heaven, when we allow our earthly minds to shape our understanding of the kingdom of God, we begin to twist and have a poor understanding of what heaven really is. So when we talk about streets of gold, when we talk about precious stones and pearls, it speaks to our earthly minds of prosperity and of always having everything that we need so that we think to ourselves that we'll never be in need when we get to heaven. We have no financial need, and that's true. I want you to know that that's true. When we speak of no more illness, when we speak of no more pain or no more hunger and death, we think of our sinful decaying bodies and we think of the relief of the physical wellness, which is also true. We have all of those things as well, don't we? I want you to understand that. I want you to know that that's true. Those are the things that resonate with our earthly minds. Those are the things that resonate with our earthly bodies because those are the things that matter to us here, aren't they? Finance matters to us right now, doesn't it? Health Illness, death, those things matter to us right now, don't they? Those things are very important to us. We're affected by these things every single day. But I want you to understand there's more to it than that. There's so much more. I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 14. And I want you to look at verse 17 with me. It says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of what? but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Did you see that? So the kingdom of God is not the physical things. It's not the eating and drinking and the well-being. It's not those things. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. And that righteousness, friends, brings glory to God. And guess what it does in the meanwhile? It brings peace and it brings joy in your own lives here. How often do you hear people who are constantly seeking peace and joy in their lives? Do you ever hear anybody like that? We constantly seek peace. We constantly seek joy in our lives. And it's so unfortunate that these people seek peace and they seek joy by trying to satisfy themselves with earthly things. Have you noticed that? People who seek joy and peace, they try to satisfy themselves by having earthly things fill the void. So they move from one earthly relationship to another. They seek joy and peace in their finance. They seek joy and peace in whatever else they think will make them happy. Yet day after day after day, these people find absolutely no satisfaction. All they find is disappointment. They find loneliness and they find heartache because they are looking for peace and they are looking for joy in the wrong places. They're looking for it in all the wrong places. Friends, hear me. Peace and joy are found in the Holy Spirit. And as you commit yourselves to service in the kingdom of God, it is there that you're going to find true peace. It is there that you're going to find true joy. And it is there that you're going to find true contentment. Christians, listen closely to me. This is very important. If you are a Christian, you have absolutely no business seeking peace and joy in earthly things. Do you know that? You have absolutely no business looking to earthly things to provide you with peace and joy. Stop looking for joy in your toxic relationships. Stop seeking peace in financial security. 
What did Jesus say in Matthew 6.33? Do you remember? He says, seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and what else? And his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of this other stuff, all of these other things that you're looking for will be added unto you. Kids, find your satisfaction in honoring God and he will take care of the rest of these things for you. Find your satisfaction, kids, in honoring God and he will take care of all of those things for you. For you. That's when those things really become truly sweet for you. Do you know that? That's when those things really become valuable to you. When you stop seeking them and you allow God to just give them to you because He wants to pour out blessing on you for serving Him, that's when they become very, very sweet. That's when they're the best. That's when they're truly satisfying. I want to take you back to verse 11, if I may, of Ephesians chapter 1. In him we have obtained an inheritance. And now I'm going to skip down to verse 12. We already dealt with the last part of verse 11 a couple weeks ago. So in him we have obtained an inheritance so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Did you know that Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7 tells us that the very reason, friends, the very reason that he created you is that you may bring glory to him? Did you know that? Did you know that the very reason that he created you is that you might bring glory to him? It's all about the praise of the glory of God. As we learned in verse 6, we found that we may be in awe of his magnificent grace, that we could be in awe of his magnificent beauty. Now listen, in our fallen and sinful earthly condition, we do not have the capacity to bring glory to God. You understand? In your earthly fallen condition, you have no capacity to bring glory to God, but when he bathes you in the grace and forgiveness that are only to be found in your faith in Jesus Christ, you are made holy and you are made blameless in Christ. We have been purchased, my friends, we talked about this last week, at the cost of the death of Jesus Christ. And when he purchased us, he liberated us from our captivity to sin. Then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you now have the ability to honor God and to bring glory to him by conducting yourselves in patterns of behavior that please him. Did you know that? It's after you have received the Holy Spirit, after you have been saved, then you have the ability to bless Him and to honor Him by patterns of behavior that please Him. That's the real inheritance. Did you know that? That is the real inheritance. It is the ability to honor God at a higher level than you have ever thought possible. It is the greater capacity to honor God through a higher standard of holy and godly living. That's the inheritance, that you have a greater capacity to honor God and bring glory to Him. I am absolutely convinced that the real value and the real fullness of your inheritance in heaven is the ability to honor God and to glorify and to worship God at a level that has been up to this point for you absolutely impossible. That's the point of heaven. It's not all of the things that you get. It's not necessarily the fact that there's no longer any pain. It's that now you have a new capacity, a new ability to bring glory and honor and worship to God at a level that you've never seen before. The reason that we are saved is to bring glory to God. That's super important for us to realize. The very reason that He saves us is that we are able to bring glory to God. The reason that we are saved is to bring glory to God. Our lives must be a pattern of striving daily to honor Him at greater levels. That's the point. 
It's a, it's a pattern of striving to honor Him at a higher level every day. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we develop a knowledge, as we develop an understanding of the Word of God and of Jesus Christ, we go from one degree of ability to bring glory to God to another degree of bringing glory to God. And so what he means is that we are transformed, listen, from one spiritual level to the next. You are growing spiritually and you are becoming more and more pure. And in this way, you bring more glory to God. So as we have been adopted into his family, we continue down the path of growth, guided by the Holy Spirit, until finally, one day, we have gone from one level to the next level to the next level, until we finally realize our ultimate goal of salvation. And what is that? Take a look at 1 John chapter 3. And this is what it says in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. This is after we've been adopted. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But look, but we know that when he appears, this is Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the ultimate goal. It's to be like him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So that's your inheritance, friend. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is to be like him. It is to be purified until we are like he is that we may glorify God at the highest possible level level. Does that make sense? So if we take a look at verse 13 then, you will see where the ability to glorify God begins. Take a look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're going to stop right there. There are many people in the world who are looking for salvation. Did you know that? Kids, salvation means that you are saved. Salvation means to be saved. And there are many people in the world who are looking for salvation. They want to be saved. Romans 1.20 tells us that by looking at the created order, man knows that God exists. Man already knows that God is real. They already know the truth that God exists. And so many people, though knowing deep in their hearts of His existence, deny it. They know that He exists because creation bears testimony to that fact. It bears witness to His creative order. And many people look at it and they deny it. But from the very beginning of time, even the most remote people groups have attempted to find salvation and they just haven't known where to look. They have all, from the very beginning, have all tried to worship. Creation testifies with their spirits that God is real. Even the most primitive people groups can look at creation and know that God is real. They know that He's real. And here's the problem. If God is real, we're accountable to Him, aren't we? If there really is a God then it means that there is someone that we are accountable to. If there really is a God, then you are accountable to Him. And so what man does then is he creates systems of religion and he creates systems of sacrifice to try and fill in this void. And so the enemy then of man's soul will lie to man by saying, oh, there's no one particular way for you to get to God. There's no one particular way. All paths lead to God. Have you ever heard that? All paths lead to God. One religious group calls him by one name, another by another name, but ultimately all paths lead to God. And I want you to know that that's a lie from the enemy of your souls. 
He would love nothing more than to deceive you into believing that all paths lead to God and that you can take any path you choose, whatever makes you most comfortable, just take that path. That's the deceit and the lie of the enemy. Did you know that 65%, 65% of Americans have been deceived into thinking that they're going to go to heaven because their good outweighs their bad? 65% of Americans are deceived into thinking that they're going to heaven because they believe their good outweighs their bad. So then what they do is they create this system whereby they go to heaven based on their own effort and they go to heaven based on their own works and their own efforts. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible does not teach that. These people are deceived. And in verse 13, Paul calls the Bible the word of truth, right? So we know that the word of truth, the Bible is the word of truth. And it is the one true path to your salvation. You need to understand that. The Bible is the one true path to your salvation. And Paul says it is the gospel or it is the good news of your salvation that saves you. Did you know that? In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The only, friends, the only effective means, the only way of true salvation, the only way that you can find right standing before God is to believe. That's it. There is no other way. Everything else is a deceit. Everything else is a lie. There is only one way to get to God, and that's to believe. And people believe all kinds of things. And I want you to know that they're not saved by those things. We teach exclusivity, which means we believe that there's only one way to get there, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And those Americans who believe that their good outweighs their bad, and that they're going to heaven because their good outweighs their bad, they're probably good-intentioned Americans... They're probably nice people, but they believe the wrong things. And they're going to spend an eternity in hell because they have believed the wrong things about God. They're going to pay the ultimate price because they have believed the wrong things about God. So what is the right thing? What is the right thing for me to believe, Scott? Take a look at verse 13 again. He said, you heard the word of truth and you believed what? You believed in Him. You heard the word of truth and you believed in Him. Kids, you are saved because you believe in Jesus Christ. You are saved because you believe in Jesus Christ. And there is no other way. What does John tell us is the belief that saves us in John twenty thirty one. He says, these are written that you may believe that what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in His name. The only way to be saved, the only way you will ever make it to heaven, is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That is so important for us to understand. It is the only way. You must repent. You must turn from your self-guided life to Jesus Christ. You must follow His leadership for your life. That's the only way to get there. That is the word of truth. That is the gospel message. It's the only way that you can be saved. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, Peter said, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. About ten years ago, Beth and I saw and we fell in love with our house that we currently live in on Meadow Lane. And many of you who have known us for a long time are familiar with the long story of how we came across the house and, and how we ended up moving into it and buying it. But we bought it before we moved into it, just just in case you were wondering. But as part of the process, our real estate agent, Fred, 
drafted up a contract which clearly outlined all of the terms and the conditions of the offer to purchase the house. And as part of the offer, we declared to the owner of the house our commitment to provide a certain sum of money in exchange for the property. And then, after we had written out our offer and we had sealed it all up, we wrote a check as a token of our commitment to purchase the home. Do you know what that's called? It's called earnest money. So after we had signed and sealed the offer, we wrote this check to purchase this house. And it's earnest money. Earnest money is nothing more than a deposit. Earnest money is a down payment which guaranteed to the seller that we would be living up to our end of the agreement. It was money that we had written to them so that they knew that we meant business. We're really going to buy this house. You know what the problem is with that? People lie all the time, don't they? People break their promises all the time. You see, Beth and I could easily have declared our intent to buy the house and then backed out at the last minute, couldn't we? We could easily have written this check and given it to them, and when they took it to the bank, it you know bounced. We could have lied about that. Or we could have said, we want this house so much that we're willing to write you this big, huge check, and then when they took the check to the bank, there was no funds. There was nothing available. People lie. Did you know that? People break promises. Did you know that? It's a sad truth. It's a product of our fallen and sinful nature. We commit to things and we don't follow through with them. In our house, one of the most serious offenses that you can commit as a parent is to say, tonight we're going to go to Culver's and we're going to get ice cream. And then become distracted and not come through with that. And then our kids will say, Mom and Dad, you promised. And Mom and Dad say, no, that was a hoax. But did you know that sometimes people don't come through with the promises that they make? In our house, that's a bad one. But it happens. I don't always come through. Sometimes I make promises to my friends and to the people that I love. and I can't always live up to the things that I've promised. And when we were in verse 11 this morning, we saw that in Christ we have an inheritance We have a portion. We have a share. We have a part of the kingdom of God. And our share is that we are being transformed to a higher level, a higher capacity to bring praise and glory to God. But I have to confess to you, I want you to hear this, and maybe you can agree with me in this. My behavior does not always glorify God. Does yours? My behavior does not always glorify God, and I know that it doesn't. And yet I commit and I confess that I love and I serve Jesus Christ. But my behavior doesn't always reflect that truth, does it? I have to confess to you that I can't just will myself. I can't just force myself to never have a sinful thought. I can't just force myself to ever have a high level of purity. I can't bring myself to do that. But I want you to know that God will never be pleased with my ability to honor Him on my own. He will never be pleased with my ability to honor Him on my own. And that's true of you as well. But I want you to know that He does not leave you alone to your own resources. He has promised to you an inheritance, and He is committed to helping you realize that inheritance. Ephesians verse 13, chapter 1 says, In Him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with what? This is your earnest money, the Holy Spirit. This is the earnest money. This is the check that God wrote on your behalf because He guarantees you are sealed. It is a done deal. You have this inheritance 
inheritance, and as a guarantee, I give you the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it. That's what the Bible says. So he uses the Holy Spirit as the earnest money of the guarantee of your inheritance. So who's the seal? It's the Holy Spirit. He's the down payment. He's the guarantee that you'll receive your inheritance. But you don't have to wait until you receive the inheritance to realize the Holy Spirit now. You get to start spending it right now. You don't have to wait until you turn 18. You don't have to wait until you turn 21. You can begin spending it right now. Verse 13 tells us that when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. I want to help you understand what that means to you. He has a role in your life, and it is very valuable, and I want to help you understand. And if you've been in life group, you've certainly known these and many more, but I'm going to go through them quickly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find that he helps us to understand the truth of Scripture that we may know how to please God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Holy Spirit cleanses us and makes us pure. He cleanses us and makes us pure. In Galatians 5, he empowers us to put to death the desires of our sinful nature. At the same time, he produces in us love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, all of those things, self-control. Kids, He helps us. Listen, in our weakness, the Holy Spirit helps us to know how to pray. In Acts chapter 1, He gives us boldness to speak. In Acts 4, He gives us boldness to share the witness of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. If you have not believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you are held captive by your sin, and you do not have the capacity to please God. If you have not believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you do not have the ability to please God. You may be able to do some nice things from time to time. You may be able to do a good deed from time to time, but they are not enough to bring praise to the glory of God. But if you have believed in Him, then He promises you eternal life and the inheritance of bringing glory to the Almighty God through the Holy Spirit as He lives inside of you. As He forges that change in your life, He will at the very same time bring peace, and He will bring the joy into your life that you've been seeking. It all comes from committing yourself to Jesus Christ. He will fill you with happiness that's not dependent on your earthly relationships and circumstances. It's the inheritance of those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And it is absolutely a rock-solid guarantee it will happen. You will have that inheritance. Just as certainly, kids, as it is impossible for God to lie, according to Hebrews 6.18, just as certainly as He has given you the Holy Spirit, you can count on your inheritance through Jesus Christ. I'm going to wrap it up this morning, but I want you to know that I know that it's possible that there are some people here this morning who feel that your lives don't bring praise to the glory of God as they were designed to do. There are some of you here this morning who know that your lives don't bring glory to God, and you know that's how they were designed and you're not doing it. And if you have not yet declared your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, I want you to know there's nothing that you can do to bring glory to Him. You cannot please Him. You cannot honor Him. And you are absolutely certain to face eternal judgment. If that's you, you need to know that. Maybe you're one of those of Romans 1 who know deep in your heart, deep in your spirit, the reality of the existence of God, but you have absolutely refused to give Him His rightful place of ruler in your life. And if that's you, I just want you to know that this would be a really good time you to pray and to tell Him in your own words that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, to the saving of your soul, and allow Him to take control and give you direction in your life. And if you're somebody who has already believed, but you know that you're making decisions and taking actions in your life that don't honor God, and you're taking actions and decisions in your life that don't bring praise to His glory, now is the right time for you to repent. 
Now is the right time for you to pray and ask forgiveness and to begin to follow the direction of the Holy Spirit for your life to the glory and the praise of the Almighty God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the kind patience and attention of your people. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the guarantee of our inheritance. We thank you for Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there are people here this morning who have not yet believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and they're troubled by the fact that they know that they can't bring glory to your name and honor you, I pray, Lord, that you would grant it to them to believe. I pray that you would give them the courage to reach out to you in prayer right this very minute and to say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Teach me. Give me your spirit. I want to honor you. And I pray, God, that you would do that in their lives right now. For those, Lord, who do already know you and love you, but they don't always behave like they do, I pray that you would give them strength. And that through the power of your Holy Spirit, they would be empowered to make right decisions to bring glory and honor to you. 